Well, let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. And this is the this will be the last time in this study that I'll have you turn there. Nehemiah chapter 8 and we'll uh, conclude this uh, series of messages on the effects of God's word on his people. And I just want to remind you a couple of things that the Bible says about itself that the the testimony of God's word about God's word. Second um, Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. All Scripture. Just to make sure you're listening. How much Scripture? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. God has given us His Word. He has breathed out. His Word, and it's been pinned down for us, and we have it, we call it the Bible. And every word is true, it is infallible, it is inerrant, and it is sufficient. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And we've talked about this before, and what we'll look at today in Nehemiah 8 and 9, we'll see it to be true again, that this book is not just a book. And when we say that it is living and powerful, I really mean that it is living and powerful. And that wherever you are in your life, when you come to God's Word, God still speaks. And He will teach you and show you what it is that He has for you, what He expects of you, and what He wants you to know about Himself. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It will show you the, the thoughts, the intents of your own heart. It knows you better than you know yourself. And so we've been covering these effects of God's Word on His people, and I've given you six from these, from these chapters. And the first uh, was simply to worship, that the Word of God as we come, it, we will be moved to worship as we see who God is. The uh, second one was teaching, that as we come to God's Word and we read it, it'll produce, teaching produces teaching. It'll give us a desire to be taught more of God's Word, and it'll put something in us to want to pass along what we've learned to someone else. The Word of God produces joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength, uh, the, the, the men told the people here in chapter 8. The fourth effect was service. And as we come to God's Word and see what He has done for us and what He requires of us, we'll be moved with compassion for the people around us and be given a desire and even instruction on how to serve in our families, in our church, in our communities, and throughout the world. So I'll give you the last two today uh, in this list. And number five on this list is simply obedience. Obedience. And let's just establish this up front before we dive in. When you realize that God has spoken, when you come across something in your Bible and you see it as a command that's been given and you realize God has addressed an issue, when you realize God has spoken, the right response is always obedience. The right response is always obedience. There's never a time when you say, well, yes, God said that, but it really doesn't apply in my circumstance. I have a special situation. The Lord understands. No, when God gives a command, when God speaks, the right response is always what? Obedience. Children, what's the right response? 
Obedience. Thank you. Everything up to this point in chapter 8 that we've read has taken place in one day. Can you believe that? It's taken me three sermons and these guys got through it in, in one day. But back in verse 2 he says, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And so everything up from verse 2 through verse 12 has happened in this one day. And so what we pick up today is in verse 13, and it's the next day, the second day. Verse 13 says, Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feasts of the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle trees, palm branches, uh, and branches of leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. And so they've gathered again here in, in the same place that they've met the day before. Now it's the, the, the heads of the Father's houses have gathered together to hear again from the Word of God. And as they've gathered to hear from God again, they've discovered this command, this requirement that God had given to His people that they had totally forgotten about. You remember for some of these people, they've gathered and the day before when they heard Ezra read from the law of God, they wept. For some of them, this is the first time in their life they've ever heard the Word of God. And so now they're reading and... Uh, you know, it might be impressive for you to know that in the second day they've already made it to Leviticus because that's where he, he teaches the, about this feast. Uh, most of us get to Leviticus in our reading plans and what happens? Uh, you either quit or skip to Matthew, right? Get out of that Old Testament business. That's just what happens. But here they are, they've, they've come and they're reading God's Word again and they've discovered a command that they've been neglecting. Leviticus chapter 23, here's the command that God gave. He said, speak to the children of Israel saying, the 15th day of this seventh month. Well, that's convenient because they've gathered on the second day of the seventh month. So it's this, they've got a couple of weeks to prep. On the 15th day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. And verse 40 says, You shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. A couple of verses later, he says, You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So God has given this command to Israel as he established his law with them through Moses that they should recognize this feast, this festival of booths or feast of tabernacles, when they're to go out and get branches of all different kinds of leafy trees and make booths for themselves on top of their houses or in the street or in the gate or just wherever they, they got a place, basically uh, pitch a tent and stay there and have this feast for seven days. Now that seems kind of odd, but the purpose was to remind them of what God had done for them when he brought them out of Israel or out of Egypt. When Israel was in bondage and slavery to Egypt and then he brought them out of that bondage by his miraculous power into the wilderness, they dwelt in booths, tabernacles, tents. And so now every year in the seventh month, on the 15th day of the seventh month, they're to put together these booths and to live in them for a week as just a reminder of what God has done for them. And friend, there's reminders that God has given us in the church of what he's done for us. 
When you were saved, when you were born again, you came into the church and you were baptized. We filled up the tank with water. You got in there and we said to be, to, to, as we were buried with Him in the likeness of His death, so were we raised in the beauty of His resurrection. And you went down into that water, signifying that you died to yourself. Your old life is behind you. Then you were raised up from the water, giving the, the symbol of new life in Christ. You've been washed and made clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then ongoing throughout the Christian life, we do that once, but ongoing through the Christian life, we get to witness others who have come to faith in Jesus and how they go through that same thing. And yes, that's a benefit for them, a moment they can go back to and remember. But it's also a reminder to the rest of us where we've been. How God brought us out of sin, how He brought us out of slavery, bondage to sin and to the devil from our destination of destruction in hell. And He saved us. That's one way he does that. The other that we recognize in the church is through the Lord's Supper. When we gather around the table and we take the bread and the cup and we say, this is the body of Jesus that was broken for us. And we eat the bread and we take the cup and we say, this is the the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. And we drink the cup. It's a reminder of what he's done. And that's sort of why God had given these feasts, these uh, signs uh, throughout Israel's history. And so they came to the scriptures and they realized God gave this command for them to be doing this thing that they weren't doing. And as we come to the scriptures again and again and again, inevitably, we're going to come across things that we've missed. Anybody ever experienced that? You've read the Bible through and you say, wow, why did I never see that before? Or, whoa, what have I been doing all this time? I've messed up. God gives a a clear and straightforward command of what He expects of you, and you see it for the first time. What do you do? The right response is always obedience. What did the Israelites do? A couple of responses here. First, simply, they obeyed. They obeyed. They obeyed even though it was inconvenient. It required an adjustment to their lives. Look at verse 16 there. It says, The people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each on one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or in the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and the open square of the gate of Ephraim. That's inconvenient. Now some of y'all enjoy camping. There's just something about laying on a hard ground in the open air. At most you've got this tent I don't get it. Y'all enjoy. I'm going to sleep at night either way. Why not sleep in my bed? I can control the temperature. I've got a fan over my head and my blanket. And I can lock my doors. Y'all seen the bears roaming around, right? We don't want that. So it's inconvenient. For one, they just got their walls built. I mean, this is a city that they're, they're still working on renovations. Some people may not have even finished working on their house yet. And now they've got this command that in a couple of weeks they've got to go out and get leaves and limbs and trees and bring them together and build booths and sleep outside for a week. That's inconvenient. It required an adjustment to their plans. I'm sure somebody already had plans for two weeks out. But once they realized what God had commanded them to do, those things didn't matter. Friends, let me tell you, sometimes when you realize that God has given a command, it's going to be inconvenient to adjust. 
In fact, I'm going to say most of the time, it's going to be inconvenient to adjust. God has expectations and requirements of His people. And when we hear what He has to say, we can't say, I really don't have time for that. Or, God, you don't know what kind of job I've got. No, listen. The right response is always obedience. Even if it's inconvenient. Even if it requires an adjustment to your life. Even if it requires a significant adjustment to your life. The right response is always obedience. They obeyed even though it was inconvenient, required an adjustment to their lives. They obeyed even though the command had been neglected for generations. Verse 17, it says, the, the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths. So they're doing what God said. They sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. Listen. You don't have to be an expert in Israel's history. Let me just tell you, a lot has happened and a lot of time has passed since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun. We're talking about the days when God first gave the land to Israel, when they're first moving in and conquering the land and building their homes and their cities. They've had kings and, and established religion in the, in, the, in the cities since then, in the country since then, and they've neglected it for a thousand years. All the years that David was king over Israel, as good a king as he was, they had ignored the, the festival of booths. Solomon, the wisest king to come after him, comes along. And, and as much as he loved the word of God, especially in those early days, they had ignored the command to keep this festival. It had been generations since anyone had obeyed this command. But when they saw it, that didn't matter anymore. Because the right response is always... Obedience. God gave a command, and even though it was inconvenient, even though it required an adjustment to their life, even though their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, and everybody, as far as they could go back in their family tree, had ignored it. That doesn't matter. The responsibility is now on them because they know what God has said, and they've got to do something with it. Listen, if, if you come across a command in Scripture or you come across the ways of God in His Word and you say, well, that's just not the way my parents did it. My grandparents never did that. I don't know anybody who's ever done this. Can I tell you that really doesn't matter. What matters is what you are going to do with what you know from God's Word. God's not going to hold you accountable for what your parents knew and didn't know. God will hold you accountable for what knowledge you have of your, His Word and what you choose to do with it. So the right response is obedience. And verse 18 says that they continued in the Word day by day. So they responded by obeying and they responded by continuing in the Word. Verse 18, day by day from the first day until the last day, that is of the feast, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. They came to this command, they obeyed it, and now there might be something in them that says, I don't want to read anymore. There might be something else i got to do. But they were so hungry, they had such a desire for the Word of God, that even though it was causing some inconvenience in their life, and they were having to make some adjustments, and they were having to do things they'd never seen done before, they kept coming again and again, day after day, to the Word of God. 
Friends, that's my exhortation to you. Continue in the Word. Adjust your life and obey God's commands as you discover them or as you hear them preached or taught. And then go right back to the Word and continue in it. Go back again and again and again to the Word of God. Here's what James said about it. He said, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So sin isn't always actively committing some crime. But to know to do good and to choose not to do it, it is sin. So one effect of God's word on his people is obedience. And the, the last one is confession. Confession. Look there at chapter 9, verse 1. Before we read it, let me say this. Just as we've established, have we established that when we realize God has spoken that the right response is always obedience? Do we get that? <laughs> Are we clear now? I hope so. This too is true. When you realize you've sinned, the right response is always confession. When you realize you've sinned, the right response is always confession. Verse 1, he says, now on the 24th day of this month, so it's been a couple of weeks since the feast ended, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. So here we are, Three weeks into the month, almost four, and they're still coming, assembling again and again and again to hear the word of God. And as they are receiving this regular diet of the word of God, their sin is being exposed. That's what we read from Hebrews 4, right? That the word of God is living, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It exposes and discerns the thoughts and intents of your own heart. As they con continue to come to the Word of God, these things start to come to light. And that's the way it works with us too. The, the more time you spend in God's Word, the more God shows you about Himself and moves us to worship, but then the more He shows us about ourselves and our need. Just as I asked you a second ago, have you ever read the Bible and come across a command and thought, oh, I haven't been doing that. I've got to do that. I ask you this. Have you ever been reading your Bible and come across a passage and said, oh, I'm not supposed to do that. I've got to stop doing that. See, it's both, right? The Bible tells us the things that we're not doing that we should be doing, but it also points out the things to us that we are doing that we need to stop immediately. It exposes our sin. This will happen as we continue daily in our Bibles and weekly through the word preached and taught. Look at these responses from Israel as they've, they've had their sin exposed. These physical responses there in verse 1, they came with fasting. And we've talked about fasting a little bit before. And we've talked about fasting as it is associated with prayer and a, and a, a seriousness before God. That God, we are more concerned with what, what we need and we're more concerned with you and what you want than we are even with our own food. But I wonder, have you ever been so broken over your sin that you couldn't eat? Have you ever been so sick over your condition before God and some sin that is, has a hold in your life that you, you just can't even look at food? Can I confess to you and say, I have. 
and it's miserable. And some of you know what I'm talking about. And these people here, they realize the, the state of their souls and they realize the sin in their life. And they are so concerned about it that they just choose to stop eating for a little while. And get serious with God. They come and they're wearing sackcloth. And then it says they come with dust on their heads. That's the, the New King James here. They come with dust on their heads. Literally, they have earth on them or dirt on them. Now, you've heard somebody say, you know, that they've got dirt on somebody, right? What do they mean by that? They know something about somebody that that person doesn't want other people to know about. Well, the Israelites come along and they're not just concerned about having dirt on other people, so to speak. They come and they realize and in a symbolic way, they say, there's dirt on us. We know that we're nothing but dust. We're dirt. We're earth. We're nothing before God because of our sin. And they showed it in that literal, physical way by putting dirt on their bodies. I'm not saying you have to do that, but are you that concerned? Are you that broken over the sin in your life? Now, there's a whole bunch of sins the Bible addresses, so I wouldn't dare try to cover them all. But you know, and I'll let the Holy Spirit show you what's in your life. You know what's there. All these signs, all these physical responses show the seriousness of sin. There's sorrow over sin. There's none of this, oh, well, you know, I'll ask forgiveness for that later, but I'm going to enjoy it right now. Or, God, forgive me for what I'm about to do. I know we say that jokingly. We've got to stop. Because sin is not something to joke about. Sin is not something that we're going to take God's grace lightly over. That's not their attitude at all. Their attitude is brokenness. It's sorrow over their sin. These were the same kinds of things that people would do. You, you read your Old Testament, this sackcloth, this ashes and dust on their heads and things like that. This was responses that they gave when people died. When a loved one would, would die, they would show their sorrow. They would, they would mourn that way by putting on sackcloth and wearing dust on them. And now here they are responding in that same way to their own sin. It's, it's as sorrowful as death. And then we see some verbal responses in verse 2. Then those of the Israelite lineage separated themselves from all the foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So they come along and they're confessing their sins with their mouths. James 5.16 tells us in the church, he says, Confess your trespasses, your sins, one to another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. There's a, a command here in Scripture that we're to confess our sins to one another. We've said this before. It doesn't mean that everybody's got to line up here on Sunday morning at the platform and stand at the microphone and say, Well, my name's Jacob, and I just want to tell you that this week I da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da and go through the list. It's not what we're talking about here. But every Christian needs relationships with other Christians that are close enough that when you sin before God, yes, you confess that sin to God and you seek out forgiveness. But it's something, if it's something you need help with, an ongoing persistent sin in your life that you can't break it on your own, you need to confess it to somebody. Have somebody hold you accountable and to pray for you, James says, that you may be healed. He says the effective, fervent prayer of what kind of man? A righteous man avails much. It accomplishes much. Folks, if we're harboring sin in our hearts and we're not confessing it as we ought, it's going to affect your prayer life. Do you have the days when you get on your knees and you pray and you think, that did not make it past the ceiling? Is there sin in your life? 
Do you need to confess it to someone? Because sin will affect your prayers. They confess their own sin here. And then they confess the sin of their fathers. They, they separated from the foreigners first, it says. I think it shows a couple of things here. One, separating from the, the foreigners among them, they, they were owning their own sin and not, not blaming it on the people who were around them. It, it could have been easy for the Israelites to say, oh, we, we, we sinned and we worshipped the, the gods of, our, uh, of the pagans because they influenced us. They were close. And so no, these guys in the crowd, they, they separate themselves from the foreigners and they start confessing their own sins and the sin of the Father. They're taking responsibility for it. They're taking ownership of it, Judy. She loves ownership. Taking ownership for their own sins and their own guilt. But they're also separating in the sense that they're separating from those relationships that violated God's covenant. You remember Ezra 9 and 10, how the people of Israel had come and they had intermarried with the pagans and the idolaters and the, and the people around them? God had commanded them not to, and it wasn't a race thing. It had nothing to do with their nationality. It had to do with the fact that they worshipped idols. They were pagans, and they would draw God's people away from Him. And so God had said, no, here's my covenant with you. You don't marry any of those people outside of your country. And they had. And because of God's covenant, here they are, they're separating themselves from those, those people with whom they had intermarried. Now, let me just be clear about this again. In the church, that is not a precedent for us. This is a covenant that God had with national Israel, not the church. So if you find yourself married to an unbeliever, someone who does not honor God, the, the command for you is not to leave them. The New Testament command for you, you can read in 1 Peter and other places, is to stay with that partner and to be a witness to them. To be an example and to quietly show what a Christian life looks like to that unbelieving partner. But in Israel's case, because of the covenant, they needed to separate. They had to do that. And apparently what happened in, in, in Ezra what didn't happen completely. And there's still some of that going on. And they're having to, to separate those relationships. And so let me just, can I just say this for a second? If you're not married and you're a Christian, don't marry an unbeliever. Can anybody else in the room say amen? All right. Mamas and daddies and grandmas and grandpas, say amen. Don't marry an unbeliever. Can I say something else? Don't even date an unbeliever. You know why? Because then you'll fall in love. And oh, I know he's not a Christian. I know he's never been to church. But he's so good to me. I bet I can win him. You probably won't. Not saying that to be mean, but usually in these situations where you have one that's a believer and one that's not, it's not that the, the believer pulls up the unbeliever, but it's that the unbeliever pulls the believer down. And so you have a command in Scripture. Hold on. What's, what's our response to commands? Obedience. To not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And in the context of the passage, he's talking about marriage. There is no fellowship between light and darkness. And a Christian should not be in that kind of relationship with an unbeliever. You're welcome, mamas and daddies. They identified here with the sins of their fathers because of their own continuation of it and their complicity in it. Um, it's not that them confessing the sins of their fathers in some way benefited their, their ancestors who were dead. And it's not that their ancestors had done something that they weren't doing and they had to confess it for their sake. 
But the reason they confessed the sins of the fathers here was because they had continued in the sins of the fathers. They had continued in the ways that they had seen exhibited in the lives of their, their parents and their, their grandparents and their ancestors. And here in this generation, they're saying, yes, we've seen this sin at generation after generation in our families. But when it gets to us, we're just going to say right now it stops. And that might be the case with some of you that you have a parent and a grandparent and a great grandparent. and They've had the same besetting sins generation after generation after generation. You see it sometimes with with alcoholism and things like that, where, where it seems like the same problems fall from generation to generation. But when it gets to you, friend, you are not bound by the decisions of your parents and your grandparents. You're not under some curse because your parents were sinners. You can... Break that trend, not in your own strength, but by the grace of God. You can confess that sin and say, you know what, even if you've participated in that sin up to this point, you can say, I confess this has been my, my, the sins of my parents. It's been my own sin. I confess it before you, O oh God, and it stops now. And God can do that. And so they're confessing the, the sins of their fathers here. And true confession is always that which leads to change, that which leads to repentance. Look at these heart responses in, in verse 3. It says that they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. And for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. They've read from God's word, they've seen a command, they need to obey, and they've obeyed it. And they came again to the word of God. As they came again to the Word of God, they began to see the sin in their own life and, and their, their standing with God that was in trouble. And they confessed their sin. And then what they do? They returned again to the Word of God. They immersed themselves again in God's Word. Friends, I hope that you're getting the point over and over and over again. You need to immerse yourself in the Word of God. You need the Bible daily. D.L. Moody is attributed with this quote, that the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. The Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. They, they, don't, they don't coexist very well in your life. If you're spending time in the Word of God, you're going to see the sins as they come up and you'll confess them and do away with them. But if you let the, the sins take over and you start indulging yourself, you're going to find that less and less you're coming back to the Bible. Notice here that they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. We're back where we started. We're back to worship. In the New Testament... What is God's response when we confess our sins? 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, that's the gospel. That Jesus, the, the sinless one, knowing the state that we were in, knowing that we are sinners and that we deserve judgment from God, came to earth and lived among us perfectly, a way we never could. 
And though he did not deserve to die, he laid down his life willingly. And when he was nailed to the cross, he took the, the judgment, the wrath of God, the, the punishment for your sin and mine on himself. And he paid our debt. He paid the penalty for our sins when he died. He was buried, and on the third day, he rose from the dead. And in rising from the dead, he proved that he has the power to forgive sins and give new life. And that's what he offers to those who believe in him. That if you do confess your sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And for our ongoing walk with the Lord as Christians... Worship and confession have a very close relationship. We just want to read a few more verses to you. I think we've got time for this here in chapter 9. Look here at how this um, announcement from the Levites starts in verse 5. It's about halfway through verse 5. He says, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven. You have made, uh, you have made the heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of the earth of the Chaldeans. You gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with you. And he, they go on this line of worship. And then throughout the rest of the chapter, uh, they're going through the history of Israel and how that God has proven himself faithful, yet how their, their ancestors always showed themselves unfaithful. And so then what starts with worship back in verse 5, when you get to verse 32, it turns into confession. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, we have done wickedly. Neither our kings, nor our princes, our priests, nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom, or in many good things that you gave them, or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. So it starts out as this, this praise, this adoration, this worship of God. And by the time they get done, they're saying, we've just been awful. And worship and confession just have this relationship with God because what happens when we realize our condition? We come and confess our sins to God. We find that He forgives us. And then we come right back to worship again. And we worship and we praise. And as we worship and know God and praise, we begin to see sin and we confess it and come back to worship. And it's just this cycle in our lives. It reminds me of Isaiah in the temple. Those first five chapters of Isaiah, what's he saying to everybody? Woe unto them, woe unto them, woe unto them. They stink, they're sinners. You know, he just goes on. And then he gets, you get to chapter 6, and he says, Then I saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple. The train of his robe filled the temple, and it was filled with smoke. And the angels are saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And he has this vision of the Lord, and he worships God. And then what does he say? Not woe are they, and woe to them, and all this. But he says, Woe is me. 
for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I, I dwell among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And friends, as we come again and again and again to the Word of God, we're going to see God for who He is. And we will worship Him. We will praise Him. We will adore Him. And as we have a higher view of God, we really start to have a lower view of ourselves. Because we realize how small we are. And when we do that, we confess. And we find forgiveness. We find life in Him. We find our identity wrapped up in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we go right back to worshiping again. The effects of God's word on his people. Worship, teaching, joy, service, obedience, and confession. What's the point? Get in the word. Stay in the word. Let's pray. Father, you're good to us and we thank you for your word. I pray that it would have these effects in our lives. That we would worship you as you deserve and confess our sin as we see it. And in all things, be obedient to what you've commanded. In Jesus' name, amen.